Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Two weeks ago, we said that a church is made up of members and officers. The officers are members, but if we're drawing a distinction, we would say every church um, properly suited and, and fitted by Christ will have members as well as officers. The officers, according to the New Testament, are elders and deacons, and those officers are to be chosen uh, through the common suffrage of the congregation. The congregation, we use the term voting, the congregation uh, as, a, as a body publicly affirming and recognizing the gifts of Christ, and that we concluded two weeks ago by pointing out that the role of preaching and teaching is not limited to those men in office. Now, typically, we don't think of deacons as preachers, but if we think specifically, and tonight we're going to talk specifically about the, the, the elders, the, the function of preaching and teaching is not limited to that office, but rather those who are gifted for that work should use those gifts for the edification of the body. And we call those men, or the, the, uh, our, our Baptist forefathers would have called those men the gifted brothers, those that they would say, we see gifts specifically tailored for preaching and teaching, and this man needs to use these gifts, and so we need to make an opportunity for him to do that, and the church sets aside those men. Now, in that study, we mentioned the role of the elders in identifying and installing gifted brethren. The elders are to, along with the rest of the congregation, watch and see if there might be any men among them who seem to be gifted, the elders are to help evaluate uh, the man himself and his gifts or his compulsions. Maybe he feels, maybe he's sensing some things, but he's not sure. The elders will be able to help in that regard. The elders uh, would be helping the man with preparation as he grows, and that would come in the form of training or practice or uh, study tips, things like that. Uh, I, and, and that falls under the category of what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And the idea there is you have the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who we would probably say was more like an evangelist or an apostolic delegate. Some people would use that term. And Timothy was taught, taught how to look for elders and, and help the church find elders but Timothy was to take the things that Paul had taught him and trust those things to faithful men in the church and those faithful men would have the responsibility of then passing those things on to others. A multi-generational work there, but the assumption is that there are some men who are going to be looking for other faithful men who are going to be looking for other faithful men who are going to be looking for other faithful men and the point is that the elders of a church would be uh, taking a lead role in that. I hope it's not strange uh, if to think that way. It, it, I think most of us would say it would be strange if I had a an aspiring gifted brother. We ha we had an aspiring gifted brother, and I just came to a random member of the church, and I said, "Hey, this brother feels like he's got gifts for preaching and teaching. I'm going to turn him over to you. I want you to help him evaluate that." think through that, prepare, and, and, and get him on this track. The average member of the church would say, I, I don't feel like that's really what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's appropriate. That, that's not something that everybody should feel obligated to be doing. The elders take a lead role in that, and again, according to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Now, if we step back from the particular discussion of the gifted brethren, we had already been talking about some other functions that the elders of a church would have. We already read back in main heading number one that a church is to meet for public service and worship of God. Well, if we go back to ancient 
Israel, if we go back to the synagogue worship uh, during that time and all the way up through to the time of Christ, uh, public service or public, the public service of worship has always required somebody to lead it, somebody to officiate that service. We read under those headings, or heading number one, among whom, this church, among whom the word of God and sacraments are to be duly administered according to Christ's institution. Again, the implication there is that somebody has the job of administering the word and the sacraments. Somebody has to administer these things, give them out, and then there are others who receive them. To be duly administered means to be given out in a fit, suitable, or proper manner. I'm just pointing out what ought to be obvious, but maybe sometimes we don't notice that it's quite so obvious. With regard to church membership under heading number three on page six, we read, before each person is admitted as a member in such a church so constituted, they must declare to the church, and then we have this parathetical statement, or to the pastor they shall appoint, what God has done for their souls. Now, in this act, it seems as though the pastor is allowed to represent the church to that aspiring member. They either get, tell it to the whole church or they can speak to the pastor. And I think the implication, we we're presuming that the pastor would then take what they have seen in that testimony and convey that back to the church, speak on behalf of that person, represent that testimony to the congregation. These new members, and this would be all of us as members of the church, are to give themselves up to the watch and charge of the pastor and ministry of this church. The word watch there could be defined as attention or close observation or guardianship. Give yourself up to the watch. We don't mean watch TV, but as we just read from Isaiah, like a watchman, somebody who's on the wall looking out and Guarding, that's, that's the picture there. They give themselves up to the watch and charge. That word charge refers to the person or thing committed to another's custody, care, or management, a trust. Thus, and this is from an older dictionary, thus the people of a parish are called the minister's charge. Those entrusted to his custody, his management. And so every new member of a church is expected to give themselves up to the observation, the care, the custody of the pastor. Again, that's Keech's language. Remember the whole point of this is we have our confession of faith. Sounds great. What did those men actually think about all of this? Well, this is one of those men. This is Keech's language. He went on to say, the pastor then also signifies in the name of the church their acceptance of each person and endeavor to take care of them and watch over them in the Lord. So here the, the pastor actually takes the responsibility of speaking for the church to that person and lets that person know on behalf of the church, we also commit to our duties to you. The pastor acts as the voice of the church and the pastor himself endeavors to take care of and watch over each member of the church. Now, all of this is assuming that the pastor elder, while being himself a member of the church, also stands apart according to his office and takes a lead role in conducting the worship, administering the word and sacraments, acting as the ear and the mouth of the congregation, as well as exercising close watch over and management of the other members of the church. All of that is stuff we've, just the implications of what we've read. It's, it's assumed. Now, you can see the next section that we're going to be moving into, main heading number two on page seven, is of the work of pastor, bishop, or overseer. But I want to kind of bridge the gap here because all of this leads us into the direction of the subject of pastoral authority. And the question here is, what authority, if any, do the elders of a church have over the congregation? What authority, if any, 
do the elders of a church have over the congregation? And, and from the outset, we're often met with two extremes. Two extremes. The first sounds like this. The pastor elder has supreme authority. He is to be obeyed without question in all that he says. Why? Well, because he's the pastor. If you, if you question him, that's sinful. Why? Well, because he's the pastor. If you disobey him, or he gives you counsel and you go against it, well, that's sinful. Why? Well, because he's the pastor. That's one extreme. And that, that view is, is probably, ironically, prominent in more independent, fundamental Baptist environments. Ironically, also, many of the more modern seeker-sensitive type churches where the pastor is the, the vision-casting leader, and you're not to question the vision of the pastor. These groups that, you know, on the surface hate each other are really very much alike in their, their thinking. But the idea here is that, that a pastor can never be questioned or, or, or anything. You might even get a hint of this kind of thinking, and I want to be careful with the language here because I don't think, think that... that these would go to that extreme, but sometimes in a Presbyterian setting where they will have a plurality of elders, but they still believe that the elders have the final say in the really the most important of church matters, including who comes in, who comes out, and who is the pastor of the church. In a Presbyterian setting, the elders, and, and a lot of times that group might be made up of men not even a part of that congregation, those men have the, the say, not just the final say, the say in who becomes a member, who is excommunicated, and who the pastor is, of, uh, is in a particular congregation. The elders are, are, a, are the final say. That's just how it's governed. And, and the congregation in those uh, types of uh, acts of the church is, is very often absent. They don't have to worry about it. Our elders take care of that. That's one extreme, and, and don't hear me saying Presbyterians are like the independent fundamentalists or seeker-sensitive churches. There is a difference, but you can kind of get that feeling. Well, these are the elders. The elders make those decisions. They do that stuff. We just let them do what they do. The other extreme sounds like this. The pastor elder has no authority. There's a a video that's making the rounds that I've seen recently that at least uses this language. And we have to be careful because some people use this language and they really mean well. And as they, the more they talk, you realize they're saying the exact same thing we are. But, and I think that it's come, come from somebody who come from, from the independent fundamental background. But the, the view here is that the pastor elder has no authority whatsoever. And so in this type of, of setting, obedience or submission is always subject to individual preference. So the, the, the church member, the average member says, if I do heed the pastor, it's ultimately because I have determined to do so, not because of him in the least. And if I don't heed the pastor, well, it's because I've decided not to, and either of those options are appropriate because there's really no authority, there's no reason that I would even be inclined to heed or submit or not heed or submit. That's ultimately up to me. This type of thinking often implies that the pastor ought always to be questioned or doubted or treated with some measure of suspicion simply because of his office. Everything that he does is is received like this. Just, just waiting for the, what's wrong. Some suspicion. So, something, uh, something's not right here. There, there has to be something behind what's happening here that, that I need to just always be on my guard against. Because, well, why? Well, because he's the pastor. We, we can't, surely we can't just trust him. That, that's this, this extreme. And many times the idea is, well, we, we, we all know that men are corrupt. 
uh, we'll, we'll point to the Bereans. You know, the Bereans, remember, Paul preached to them and they didn't even trust him. Well, they received the word with joy. And then they went and made the things. They didn't, they didn't question and doubt, who, who is this man? But th- that's often behind this type of thinking. The pastor in, in this mindset, as a member of the church, has no real position over the church. And rather, he should actually be asking the congregation for permission in all matters pertaining to his office and ministry. And so he shows up and he basically says, you all just tell me what you'd like me to do. Hopefully we can see the, the absurdities in these extremes. And the, the reality and really the beauty of the Word of God is that it always f- strikes a, a perfect middle ground, yes. a, a right and proper middle ground between extremes. The pastor does not have supreme unquestioned authority. The pastor does have real actual authority, or the old writers would use the, the phrase office power. No. we'll get into some of what that means. But let me begin by defining the word authority. Authority is defined as legal power or a right to command or to act as the authority of a prince over subjects and of parents over children. Now notice in that definition, we, we, don't, we don't see anything like absolute, unquestioned, no exceptions, obey without We don't see that. Legal power or right to command or to act as the authority of a prince over subjects and of parents over children. Now, there's no doubt that as Americans in the 21st century, where power, authority is pretty much regularly abused, uh, we live in a nation of, of moral bankruptcy in almost all positions of power. We have also the internet where we can find facts about things that very often... We have Wikipedia, which is literally like anybody can go and just write on there. You you can make it up. Now, these things are questioned and checked, we hope, but a lot of people will take things like that as as gospel. Um, Conspiracy theories, or maybe not theories, just the idea... And my mind goes to a mixture between, uh, you know, the truth is out there somewhere and also trust no one. Uh, That's sort of the world that we've grown up in. Just question everything in power. Anybody who's in authority, your, your first posture should be, who are you and why are you lying to me and why do you want to trap me? That's, that's the way we grew up. And so we have... Uh, oftentimes been shaped to think that the word authority is, is, is almost like a cuss word. If I say pastoral authority, some of you might even begin to well up with like, oh no, where are we going? Where, what, what's happening here? Again, any, anybody in authority should be first. Our first response is questioning, doubting, or even despising. Now the irony is in all of this, the individual is actually the one who places himself or herself in the place of authority to judge everybody else around them. So deep down, it's not really that we despise authority. We just despise any authority over me that's not me. We, want, we love authority as long as I'm the one who is the authority over myself because that's our natural sinful proclivity. But biblically, to cast off restraint or to throw off a yoke of rightful authority, that's, that's the mark of folly. We shouldn't be that type of people. So let's think about the two illustrations that were given in that definition. The authority of a prince over subjects and parents over children. We, we have the civil sphere there and we have the household or the family sphere. Nothing is said here about the ecclesiastical sphere, but we can work our way in that direction. The, the civil sphere. In the civil sphere, I'm going to use the word prince because that's in the definition. In the civil sphere... Is the prince, or we could refer to him as the civil magistrate, I would even go so far as to say the Constitution of the United States of America. Is the prince the absolute, unquestioned authority? We, we should say no. No. That's not the way we believe. We know, hopefully all Christians know, 
that if the prince or the magistrate or even our own constitution commanded sin, we would say, I'm disobeying. I will not do what you say. Well, what are we saying? We're saying you don't have unquestioned authority. There's somebody above all of that. There's somebody above you that my allegiance is actually to beyond you. It's, it's God. God is our final authority. God rules supremely, but He exercises that rule through the civil magistrate. Our allegiance must ultimately be to God, but because God has ordained the magistrates, we also submit to them when and where we can. We, we ought to want to submit to them. They do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, unquestioned authority. That doesn't mean it's not real authority. It's just not supreme. If we come into the home, in the home, are the parents the absolute, unquestioned authority? Hopefully we would say, not even at home. Because we know if mom or dad command us to sin, we have to say, I can't obey you. I have to obey God. Even in that sphere, God is the ultimate and supreme authority. God rules supremely, but He exercises that rule through the parents. Again, our allegiance must ultimately be to God, but because God has ordained the family as an institution, children are expected to submit to their parents. And as they submit to their parents, they're actually submitting to God Himself. Now, if we bring that same line of reasoning over into the ecclesiastical sphere, the sphere of the church, in the church... Are the elders to be the absolute, unquestioned authority? Hopefully we all say, no, of course not. Do we not understand that if the elders were to command us to sin, we would all have the obligation to say, no, we're not doing that. That would be wrong. So again, who is the supreme authority if that's the case? Well, the supreme authority remains God Himself. Remember that definition of authority did not say supreme, unquestioned, allegiance without exception. It didn't say that. It said the right to command or to act. Christ rules His church supremely, but He exercises that rule through the elders. And so our allegiance is ultimately to God, but because God has ordained the church as an institution, congregations are expected to submit to their elders, as we read, obey your leaders and submit to them. Elders do have real authority, even if it's not supreme, all-encompassing, and unquestioned authority. Now, you might hear all of that and say, okay, I thought we were going to be toning this down, but now I'm getting a little scared. But we can go even further with this. Elders do have real authority, but go back to the magistrate. Does the civil magistrate have the right to dictate the daily affairs of your home? We should say no, they don't. Now, in a lot of things they do, or they try to, it's not right. They should not. It's wrong. The, the civil authorities, the, the, the police, cannot come to your house, children, and arrest you and take you to jail because you didn't clean your room. They can't do that. That their authority is limited by God to a specific sphere with a specific application, and they have a specific instrument that they are to use. It is the sword, Romans 13. They, they operate in the civil sphere. They are to apply the laws in the civil sphere, and they use the sword to punish the wrongdoer. Does a parent, as a parent, have the right to dictate the daily affairs of the government? No, not as a parent, I don't. As a parent, I cannot go down to the sheriff's department and restrict a police officer's rollerblading privileges because he didn't clean his room. I can't do that. I can't walk and say, hey, I am a citizen of this county, and I am a father, and you didn't clean your room, therefore no rollerblading for a week. He would say, you don't have the right to do that. You have no authority here, and he would be correct. Because as parents, our authority is limited by God to a specific sphere a specific application, and we also have a specific instrument, the rod of discipline. That's what we use. So in the church, does an elder, as an elder, 
have the right to dictate the affairs outside of or beyond his sphere of authority? The answer is no, he does not. Just like in these other spheres, the elders have a restricted area of authority with very clear boundaries given in the Word of God. Our authority, while it is real authority, it is limited by God to a specific sphere, the church, a specific application aiming at the minds and the hearts and the consciences of men with a specific instrument, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I can't come to your house. Let's imagine, after the sermon this morning, I found out, you know, you're, you're living off of uh, two packs of cigarettes a day and you're not eating any food and you're, you're, you're just digging yourself in, in the ground with your physical health. Maybe two packs is not that enough. What's a lot of cigarettes? I don't know. Anyway, you're, you're, you're obviously not stewarding your body well. Okay, I can't come to your house with a rod and say, all right, turn around, put your hands on the bed. I can't do that. All I can do is come and say, listen, the Word of God says this and this and this, and I'm pleading with you, according to your profession, or who you say you are, to obey the Word of God. And I walk away. That's, that's all we can do in those areas. It's limited. So the pastor elder has real Christ-given authority to be exercised in the church within the boundaries restricted by the Word of God and are only to do so using the Word of God as the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Our rule is Scripture. The Word of God says this, therefore this is what we ought to do, and that's, that's how the authority plays itself out in the church. Now, that's important because you will hear men who will say, well, the pastor has no authority. We have zero authority. We just preach the Word of God. The Word of God is the authority. Okay, that's, that's essentially what we're saying here. Except the, the, the duty of administering the Word of God has been given to specific men to, to be applied in the church in a specific way. Now, the term authority might be a stumbling block for some people. It, it shouldn't be. The word authority should not be a stumbling block for us. We should be thankful for authority. We should be thankful for, for these structures. But, but sometimes it, it might be. So let's turn to the Scriptures and just look at the titles that are given to a pastor elder and then we'll deduce from that whatever is appropriate in, 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 from, from that. If, if you arrive at the word authority... You say, it sounds like they have authority. Great. If you would rather settle, settle for office power, that's also acceptable. What we're trying to do is trying to be convinced from the Scriptures regarding our duty, whatever place the Lord has given us. The, the elders here are not looking for salutes or take a knee or carry my Bible. or We're not looking for that. We'll see what the Scripture says, and then you will have to determine, based on those titles... Wherever I fit in this machine or this, this organism called the church, my duty is A, B, and C. And we'll look at more of that next week. Just to show you that we're actually still working in this book. The next main heading at the top of page 7 is the work of a pastor, bishop, or overseer. Now apparently Keach ran into the same thing that we've been dealing with from the very start. And we'll continue to deal with, and that is the name or title of this office. You'll know that it, notice that I continuously say the pastor elder, the pastor elder, the pastor elder, because we, we want to make, we're trying to deal with the biblical data. Keach gives three of the work of a pastor, bishop, or overseer. Three titles. What's the deal? Why, why can't we not just come up with a word? Well, it's because the scripture doesn't just give us one word and say, here's the word. Very often, the names that we use for these men will follow a particular tradition and our English Bibles all use these various terms. That's why you hear different people using different words. If you are from a, a, a setting where you've typically had a single pastor, then to come into a setting where you had multiple pastors 
might seem strange. I remember the first time I experienced it. Went to a church, went from a, a single pastor church to a church with pastors. And, and I thought, what, what, I don't even understand what's happening here. Because it was not, it was not normal to me. And the, the label elders to that type of person might seem like a lesser office. Or the elders might seem more like a board of advisors or counselors to the pastor that you're used to. If you are used to a plurality of elders, then to call one or of them pastor or the pastor, that might also seem strange. Sometimes you might refer to the office as elder, but then you might as a title refer to the man as pastor so-and-so. Because elder so-and-so sounds Mormon. We don't want to do that. So we would say, well, he's pastor so-and-so. What is he? Well, he's one of the elders here. Other traditions will refer to the office as pastor, but they will refer to the man as bishop so-and-so. And that's a word from the King James. So they might say, oh, that's, that's bishop so-and-so. He's our pastor. Or they might say bishop so-and-so. He's our bishop. But they, they use that word that we... As, as Protestants kind of run from, but it's, it's a, 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 a biblical word, an English word that, that suits the, the point. In, in a lot of these instances, it's just a semantical, it's just a difference in words. It's just a lot of people using a bunch of different words because there are so many and we're trying to be faithful with the text. In other instances, there are real differences in church government, and those differences are shown in the varying words. Biblically speaking, and here's, here's our... our where I want to go for the rest of this evening and, and into next week. Biblically speaking, here's the truth. We're, we're setting aside deacons, so forget about them for a second. Biblically speaking, there is one office. There are multiple titles for the one office. And the next week we'll see that these various titles simply reveal the breadth of the work of that one office. So there's one office for tonight, one office, and there are multiple titles for the one office. So there's only one office in the church besides deacons, one office. Our confession states it this way. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, skipping some words, are bishops or elders and deacons. Bishops or elders, that's one office, two titles. They're basically saying use whatever word you want to use. One office. Keach said on page 6 of the book that a church thus constituted ought forthwith to choose them a pastor elder or elders and deacons we read of no other officers or offices abiding in the church. One office. Now this view set the particular Baptists in contrast to quite a few different groups. Among the closest of our kinsmen were the Presbyterians. In the Presbyterian view, there are depending on who you ask, but there are two offices. There's the teaching elder and the ruling elder. Often, the teaching elder is called the pastor. That's how they would refer to him. But he is, all, he is an elder. He's just the teaching elder or the pastor. And ruling elders are typically just referred to as elders. And they take this from a passage like 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching or who labor in the word and doctrine. They would see that as two different offices, those who rule well and those who labor in preaching and teaching. They would see that as, as distinguishing two offices. I think it's pretty clear. He's talking about the same office, the same person. One OPC website, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, one OPC website says, quote, Teaching elders labor full-time in the Word. They alone preach and administer the sacraments, whereas ruling elders may only exhort and assist in distributing the elements. 
And they, even on their website, they will have a distinction between the elders and the pastor. Now, what do they get wrong? Why do we think that's wrong? Well, because they have separated one office into two. They are correct in this. They are correct in that they recognize that not all men who are gifted and called to be elders have the exact same gifts to be used in the exact same way. Remember, we saw a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 12, 11, speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. The Spirit gives sovereignly the gifts as He wills. And in that list, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge and prophecy, we would, we would consider those word gifts, they're all different. In Romans chapter 12, in that list of gifts, prophecy teaching and exhortation are all different gifts. And the Scriptures say the Spirit is sovereign. He dispenses these types of gifts as He wills. Listen to John Owen. Quote, These works of teaching and ruling may be distinct in several officers, namely teachers and rulers, but to divide them in the same office of pastors that some pastors should feed by teaching only, but have no right to rule by virtue of their office, and some should ex attend and exercise unto rule only, not esteeming themselves obliged to labor continually in feeding the flock, is almost to overthrow the office of Christ's designation and to set up two in the room of it, of men's own projection. What he's, what he's, he says the works of teaching and ruling may be distinct. Why? Well, because there's a variation in giftedness. If we are expecting God to just line up an assembly line of men who all have the exact same gifts, number one, it's not going to happen, but number two, your ministry in the church is, is, has the legs swept right out from underneath it. You need a broad ministry for the broad work. But he says, to divide that idea into two offices, he says, that's, that's wrong. The pastor or elders are to minister the word by virtue of office, and all pastors or elders are to rule by virtue of the office. But the reality is that some will excel in the gifts that... Uh, manifest themselves in preaching and teaching. Some may excel in gifts that manifest themselves in wisdom, oversight, rule, and exhortation. That's just the, the common sense reading of how spiritual gifts work in the church. Oh, and again, he says, Therefore, are the elders of the church principally to attend unto the work or the end of the ministry that by the Holy Ghost they are most suited unto? In other words, where they are most gifted, that's where they should focus their attention. It would be cruel to say, we see you're really gifted here, we're actually going to put you over here and make you do it. That, that's not according to the mind of Christ. As each has been given a gift, use that gift unto edification. So, what do the Presbyterians get wrong? They make two offices. But what do they, what do they see in Scripture? That some men are better gifted at ruling and, and the, with this asset of gifts. Uh, other men are gifted in this, with this asset of gifts and they ought to work together, put those gifts together to form a broad and useful ministry in the church. And this, this I think, corrects what is a common error coming from many backgrounds and traditions which tend to equate pastor or elder with preacher. Pastor equals preacher. That's the way many of us were raised. A lot of times we would even call the man preacher blank. Now, there's no office called preacher. But that's the way we've often thought. And, and usually you will see this in a, in a one minister congregation. Well, because if you've only got one, he's got to be the preacher. So, but this, this in, in, our, in many minds, that causes people to, to draw and to equate pastor with preacher, and by preacher we mean someone who clearly excels in pulpit exercises, or, or Dabney's language would be the art of sacred rhetoric. Yeah. 
We, we got to find a man who excels in the art of sacred rhetoric, who can fill that pulpit. That's what people equate with pastor. The irony of that is, if I went around the room and I said, I want all of you to write down your five favorite preachers, I would imagine that somewhere in those lists, most of us would name men who are not pastors. But they're good preachers. They're not pastors. And if I said, well, let me name some of the most faithful pastors you've ever known. Well, they, those, that might not be the same list as the preachers because there's a difference of gifts. The, the danger, when, whenever you're in a situation where you're looking for officers, the danger is that we have in our minds, we're looking for a preacher. There are a lot of good preachers that are awful pastors. You want more than a preacher. They're not synonymous. You, you do want those gifts somewhere in the eldership, but we need to think of pastor-elder in terms of the various titles that are given them in Scripture. But again, there's only one office with a variation of giftedness. So heading number two is one office with multiple titles. And we'll go through this pretty quickly. It's a short point. I just, just want, to, want you to see it. The second point I want to emphasize this evening is that the one, this one office has multiple titles attributed to it in Scripture. The primary or most commonly used titles or descriptions of this work or this office are pastor, elder, overseer, ruler, leader, steward. Pastor, elder, overseer, ruler, leader, steward. Now, if I just threw out those words, and this is what I'll do at the end, but if I just threw out those words... What image comes to your mind? What, what are you expecting in, the, in terms of pastoral authority? What, what do you think these words should bring to mind? Pastor, elder, overseer, ruler, leader, steward. All of these are references to those who serve this one office. These titles are interchangeable when describing the office and peculiar in how they address the particular aspects of the work of this office. So I want to show you just that, that all of these titles are interchangeable. They all refer to the one office. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders of the church of Ephesus. Acts 20, 17. And then he says to them in Acts 20, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. So from this, we can deduce elders are overseers. Overseers are elders. They're synonymous. Same group, two titles. In 1 Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you, and then he exhorts them in verse 2 to shepherd the flock of God. That word shepherd means pastor. I exhort the elders to pastor the flock. So pastor and shepherd, those are synonymous terms. We could put this together with what we just saw in Acts chapter 20. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. Pastors and elders are Overseers, multiple titles, same office. He says to Titus, in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then describing those elders in Titus 1.7, he says, An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So an elder is an overseer. We've already seen that. But an elder overseer is also God's steward. Pastors are God's stewards. One office, multiple titles. He says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Here we see that elders are to rule. That word rule means to preside or 
to govern. The elders who preside well, who govern well. So elders are rulers. Or you'll see many of the old writers will use the term governors in this list of of titles given to the pastor. Governors. In Hebrews, we read, or we read in in Hebrews 13.7, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. A leader uh, refers to a guide. And leaders here speak to you the Word of God. They lead through speaking the Word of God. That's their manner of leadership. And then in verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So leaders keep watch over your souls. It's synonymous with the idea of an overseer, an overwatcher. That's what the word means. Episcopos. You've heard of episcopal. It's the word. An overlooker, episcopos, overlooking. That's the the idea here. An overseer watches over. Well, these leaders are going to have to watch over your souls. They're the same thing. This is one office described by many different words or titles. The pastor is an elder. The elder is a pastor. The pastor elder is an overseer, a ruler, a leader, and God's steward. And... We could go elsewhere to learn more, and we may do this. The goal next week is to dig into each of those and really figure out what's happening in each of those titles. To conclude, there's only one office. There are multiple titles for the one office. Next week, we'll see the various titles reveal the breadth of the work of that one office. But until then, again, I want you to take some time to consider the implications of that terminology. Just sit and think, what... What does it mean that a man is a shepherd, a pastor? What does that mean? What could that require? What are the pictures that come to mind using the word shepherd or elder or overseer or ruler? If I sit and I think, what is a ruler? What does a ruler do? What do those who are ruled do? What is a leader What is a steward? Meditate upon these words and just think. How would I, if I put all of this together, how, what what should be my perspective toward the office? These are the words that the Spirit of God has chosen to use to describe the work of this office in the church. God chose these words. I didn't choose these words. God chose them. Now, do these words lead us to conclude that the pastor has full, unquestioned authority? Do they lead us to conclude he has no authority at all? If you were required to come up with the language to try to articulate how these titles fold into one office and how the office bearer is to relate to others in the church, how would you say it? Again, if if the word authority is is bad, give us a better one. Find, Find another word. We're okay with that. If we, when we begin to think about these words that the Holy Spirit has begun to use, if we begin to feel discomfort, we ought to realize that it's our own hearts and minds that need to be evaluated. If this makes us uncomfortable to say, well, well, the pastor is a, a governor, a leader, a ruler, he's, he's a shepherd, he's an overseer. If that begins to make us uncomfortable, then the Word of God is not at error. Our thinking and our perspective is wrong. There's no doubt that positions of leadership can be and, and have been abused. Some have had positions of leadership and they have failed to use the power given to them. They have let their people down. That's true. Some have used a position of leadership to amass for themselves a following of undivided allegiance. Some have used their position to exercise tyrannical dominion over other people. That's true in the state, that's true in the family, and it's true, sadly, in the church. But do any of those abuses mean that we abandon the whole notion of civil authority? No. Do any of those abuses mean we say, well, we're not going to do the whole parent-child thing anymore because so-and-so grew up and their, their, their father abused them when they were young? No. We say that was an abuse, that was wrong. But we don't throw off the whole structure. If anything, it means we ought to pray for those who are in these positions. Pray for them, especially in the church. 
Revelation 12, 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the command- on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Our enemy still seeks to make war on the bride of Christ. And just like he did with the first Adam, so he does with the last. He attacks the bride and he does it specifically using or questioning the word of God. And what better way to do that than by using those men placed in the position of the ministry of the Word? The ancient serpent can lead a thousand people astray by putting his hook in the nose of one man. He doesn't have to entice, he doesn't have to go about all these thousands. I'll just get one man, I'll lead him astray, and they'll all follow him. And so we ought to pray for those who are in positions of leadership. When we pray that God would raise up men to be elders here or in other congregations where they're needed, we talk about the church, the new church in Hall River that is still without officers, the, the new church in Boone that has one elder, but they would like to have more. When we pray for elders to be raised up in our congregation or others, we should not think merely in terms of a preacher. Many good preachers have split churches wide open. Great preacher. And they leave ruins in their wake. So you're looking for more than that. And we ought to expect that God would give more than that. We need to think in terms of the broad work of the ministry. Of all the various gifts necessary and useful to that ministry. And pray that Christ would give His church what they need. For many churches, the worst thing that ever happened is they got what they wanted rather than what they needed. Bring him in, listen to him preach. That's what we like. And he leads destruction in his wake. They got what they wanted instead of what they needed. And so we ought to pray, Christ, give your churches what they need. Give us what we need, not what necessarily what we want. If our wants are wrong, change our wants so that we crave what you crave. And we pray with hope, or in hope and with faith. Remembering God's promise in Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So let's do that. Let's close in prayer.